Okay, let's get started. Sorry I'm a little late. Uh, I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. I also hold the Schreier chair. We're going to be having a conversation about the United States and the United Nations. Um, I want to uh, first show a video. Um, if we can uh, start with the video, please. Go ahead. Senator Arthur Vandenberg continues his crusade for a new foreign policy to prevent a third world war. No nation hereafter can immunize itself by its own exclusive action. At a critical juncture in U.S. foreign policy, Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg famously said that politics must stop at the water's edge. Senator Vandenberg was the leading Republican internationalist of his day and he would become the legislative architect of the United Nations, NATO, and the Marshall Plan. But early in his career, Senator Vandenberg was an isolationist in keeping with his party's politics at the time and his Midwestern upbringing. World War II and the unprecedented challenges of the post-war era changed his mind. He concluded that the U.S. must assume an active role in leading the new world order and he was willing to cross the aisle to help make that happen. Before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Vandenberg chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a brief but critical period from 1947 to 1949. It was a dangerous time. The Soviet Union was bringing down the Iron Curtain and Europe was in ruins. If nothing was done, a war might return just as it had after the First World War. Only collective security can stop the next great war before it starts. After the Soviet-engineered coup in Czechoslovakia, the threat of a new Cold War became very real. In light of these challenges, at a critical conference, Senator Vandenberg led the Republican Party to adopt a conservative internationalist policy. In 1945, President Truman was seeking bipartisan support for rebuilding the world. He called on Senator Vandenberg to join him as a member of the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Conference in San Francisco. Vandenberg played a pivotal role in standing up the United Nations Charter. This assured that the U.S. held veto power in the U.N. Security Council. Vandenberg then returned to the Senate. He ensured that the U.N. Charter received overwhelming support. Thanks in part to his efforts, the United Nations remains the preeminent international problem-solving body in the world today. Senator Vandenberg was also the legislative architect of the Marshall Plan. European Economic Recovery. This provided foreign assistance to our European allies. It also promoted democracy and free markets and prevented the spread of communism. The Marshall Plan would prove to be an asset for the U.S. The amount of American goods and services Marshall Plan countries purchased far exceeded what we provided in post-war aid. This massively successful investment proved to be one of the defining efforts of U.S. foreign policy. And some of the former recipients of the Marshall Plan are our top security partners in the world today. To ensure the success of the Marshall Plan, our European security partners sought a new security umbrella with the U.S the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. They recognized that freedom and prosperity were linked to security. 
Senator Vandenberg agreed. He led the critical debate in the Senate to get the treaty passed for NATO. For the third time, he became the bipartisan champion of a definitive post-war institution. In 1948, Senator Vandenberg declined the opportunity to run for president on the Republican ticket. Instead, he chose to remain focused on his efforts in the Senate. But tragically, his groundbreaking work and political career were cut short in 1951 when he died of cancer. Senator Vandenberg was a foreign policy giant at the center of rebuilding the post-war world, but many of his contributions have been forgotten. To reclaim the legacy of Senator Vandenberg, CSIS is launching a new series that examines today's challenges through a bipartisan lens. The internationalism and bipartisanship he espoused may be the key to solving the great challenges that we face today. So thanks uh, for watching that. We're really pleased with that video. I think, I don't think anybody under the age of 60 really knows who Arthur Vandenberg is, I, I think, in Washington. And I, there are a few people, I'm sure, from a trivial pursuit standpoint. But he was an enormous, enormous uh, figure and very involved in, in setting up the liberal international order. And so I've, I've been particularly seized with this issue because um, I was shocked and there was not a serious um, biography written until about two years ago by my friend Hank Meyer, who's here. Uh, and so we worked with uh, Hank and the Meyer Foundation to set up this uh, speaker series. I'm very grateful to you, Hank. Um, but what we wanted to do was have a forward-looking, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to sort of the challenges that we face today. I think Arthur Vandenberg would recognize, the, in many ways, many of the challenges that we face. I think we're returning to an era of um, great power competition. Uh, we're also, uh, but we also at the same time need partners and allies, and we need to work in uh, collective ways, and we need to operate. Uh, out of a form of enlightened self-interest, just as we did with the Marshall Plan and with NATO. So uh, it's a, it's a, what's old is somewhat new again, and so this isn't so much a retrospective so much as uh, drawing upon the values and lessons of the past to, to deal with the challenges and the, the opportunities of the present. So I'm gonna ask my two friends to come join me up here, my friend Catherine Bertini, um, who has had a very distinguished career in politics and in government in the United States. She was also, uh, she was the head of the World Food Program, yeah please, and then was also the Undersecretary for Management uh, for the United Nations, which I think must be the most thankless job in the world. But she was also, she's a fellow at um, the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, she's a professor emeritus at Syracuse University, known to many and has many friends here in Washington. And um, I know many people are really pleased to have her here in Washington. And, and Governor uh, Bill Richardson also um, has had a very distinguished public service career. Uh, governor of New Mexico, former uh, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, former member of Congress, um, and really appreciate you being here as well. Very, very grateful. So I want to thank both of them to, for agreeing to do this. So without further ado, I'm going to join the, the, the conversation, and uh, thanks. Okay. So let me first start with the, the, the question, which is, is, is the United, why should the U.S care about the United Nations? Why, why, is the, why should the United States continue to invest in the United Nations? What does the United Nations do for the United States? Let me start with you, Catherine, and then I'll go to Ambassador Richardson. 
Well, first and foremost, the United Nations has a responsibility for peace and security, and the founders, Senator Vandenberg and others who actually uh, helped create the United Nations, knew what they were doing when they wanted to be sure that it, it, uh, the UN didn't have the same fate as the League of Nations, so they ensured that the US and the USSR at the time and three others had veto power in the context of the Security Council. Uh, that was a critical move that now often is, dis is discussed as, gee, it's no longer representative of the world. That's kind of a second discussion on the topic, but it starts with, from an American perspective, the fact that US has an exorbitant amount of influence within the UN process. So if we're just talking about the UN and the UN's role, uh, it's critically important that, uh, to the US that it has this important role in the Security Council. Now we can discuss why and how there should be discussion about change and a more representative place, but the point is that the founders thought that they had to have the two then most influential uh, countries on the globe, on the Security Council, with veto power. Otherwise, the whole system would not exist. So, sorry, Sir Catherine. It, it's one of the issues I think for President Trump is he is concerned about burden sharing. Isn't it a form of burden sharing? Doesn't the UN provide a vehicle for burden sharing of various kinds? Is that a way to describe it? Uh, yes, it does. It, first of all, it burden shares on issues, when there's a discussion of issues, so there can be a collective view about the importance of, very, uh, of many issues, but it also burden shares in terms of the cost. So the U.S. pays uh, and, and negotiated, uh, but based on a formula, 22% of the U.N.'s regular dues, and then the, the, it is supposed to pay 28% of the peacekeeping operations. Uh, one of the issues now for us Americans is that there was a congressional law passed a while ago, a law passed by Congress a while ago that says we'll pay 25% of peacekeeping, so we're in arrears by that 3% over the last couple of years. Peacekeeping is really important to us, talk about burden sharing, because of the peacekeeping operations all around the world that are funded through this fund. Peacekeeping we decide, the Security Council decides with the American support that there should be a peacekeeping operation in DRC, in Haiti, in, in um, uh, the Middle East, and then that's funded by this, these peacekeeping dues, assessments. And essentially, the benefit to the U.S. is that we have, we collectively have troops on the ground even though they're not American troops, because through this process, each country is paid on a per capita basis each month for each soldier. And uh, that way, the UN is able to provide, through member states contributing uh, nations, troops there. It costs the US, it would cost the US at least eight times as much if they were American soldiers. And then, of course, we'd have American soldiers in harm's way. So it's a huge burden sharing and a huge support. And then finally, Dan, on your burden sharing issue, there's the issue of the humanitarian work of the UN. And th this is almost all voluntarily funded. So the US decides any given moment whether or not it wants to help save children in Syria, whether or not it wants to help feed people in the DRC, whether or not it wants to help protect refugees fleeing from Venezuela. And those decisions are made by the US to support the UN organizations who are doing that work. It's not only burden sharing, it's doing the work that the US thinks is critically important. 
Governor Richardson, make, make the case for why should the United States continue to care about the United Nations? Well, in pursuit of uh, its foreign policy goals, the United States, whether it's nuclear nonproliferation with North Korea, uh, the Iraq issue, Saddam Hussein in the past, whether it's issues of counterterrorism, 9-11, uh, uh, whether it's issues of endemic diseases, uh, global health, climate change, uh, you need international support to advance American goals. Uh, that, that's the case for multilateralism. The problem, the problem today is, is several. One, uh, there is a rise of populism everywhere, which is against refugees, immigration, multilateralism, whether it's in Italy, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's in Argentina, whether it's in Hungary, in the, some argue that in the United States too, Great Britain, you see this proliferation of, 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 of a populist point of view, which is against multilateralism. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, against institutions, against the European Union, against the United Nations, against uh, multilateral solving. The biggest problem, and, and I believe the only solution is bipartisanship. I, I really hope some of the folks here, this Vandenberg was you know, Republican. In those days, there was bipartisanship. We don't have that in America today. It's not happening. I mean, we can, I, I know we want to be bipartisan here. I'm not going to overdo it, but you know, it doesn't exist. The dysfunctionality of, 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 uh, of the relationships between the Congress and the executive branch, even though there are many strong bipartisan supporters in the Congress uh, of the United Nations, things are not working. We're, we're in arrears. Now, um, issue number two is behavior of member states. The UN right now is in crisis. And for instance, we owe $750 million for peacekeeping. And you know, countries, not just the United States, pay late, they pay when they feel like, you gotta take this fund out of that money. The biggest challenge institutionally today the UN has is it's, it's not just reform, it's financial viability. So we have to deal with that. My last point is I think later, uh, the American people, I've been in politics, I've run for office, you know, the UN, nobody likes it. That's not the case. A substantial number of Americans favor the idea of the United Nations. The question is how do we harness that? The issue I think is now social media. I think that's how you approach it. And I know the UN Association Foundation is doing something because the UN, what should be highlighted is what Catherine did with the World Food Program, what, what we do with endemic diseases, the uh, sexual abuse, uh, peacekeeping mm. abuse, uh, issues that you know, need to be brought out, not just peacekeeping and national security. And I'll conclude with North Korea. I spent a little time there. The most effective mechanism that has brought North Korea to the negotiating table has been UN-imposed sanctions. These were the first sanctions that really had bite. Uh, that was oil sanctions, uh, they, uh, energy sanctions, uh, people uh, sanctions, uh, workers in North Korea uh, going to China. Uh, they, they were substantial. And I will also say that a good point about North Korea that, that has helped people is the World Food Program in North Korea. Should we continue it? Yeah, we should, because it's human beings that are dying. 
I mean, this is the poorest nation on earth. And the World Food Program is one of the links that we have to a regime that is not good. And uh, eventually, maybe it'll, it'll, it'll yield positive results in terms of more human rights. And so that's my case for the UN. I'm an unabashed UN supporter. The best job I ever had was UN ambassador. Unfortunately, it was very brief. And I'm going to tell, no, I won't tell the story of when I was switched to go to energy. <laughs> Let me, let me, let's just spend just another minute on this pay our dues, because I think uh, I came away, I feel like Catherine Bertini gave me a homework assignment on this, because we had a pregame and said, well, what can we do out of this conversation? It seems to me, we're going to have a conversation about the joys of the UN here, but it seems to me there's, an, there's a specific salient issue on the table right now, which is we've got to pay our dues. My view is real countries aren't deadbeats, and real countries pay their dues. Can you both talk about why, 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 do we, why are we not paying our dues? Can you, can you give the objective argument as to, I have no idea why, but what is, the obje, what is the objective argument as to why we're not paying our dues? And B, what are the consequences? I can tell you my view is it's probably damn hard to ride herd or have any moral authority if we ain't paying our money. I'm just guessing that's a problem. Could you both confirm that and talk a little bit about what that means if we're not paying our dues and what, what that feels like if you're in a leadership job or we're trying to get stuff done through the end if we're not paying our dues. So why, what's the argument as to why we're not paying our dues and what are the consequences of not paying our dues? Because I think that's sometimes we don't fully understand that here in Washington. Captain, yes. let me start with you. Well, the Secretary General has said there's a huge financial crisis right now. He's, you may have read, he's even looked into whether or not he could sell the, the house that's the Secretary General's home in New York in order to help him pay the deficit, Amazing. which is, you get to that point, it's a little bit crazy. Uh, but the, there are committees in the UN, they meet every three years, the US participates, they decide what percentage each, each uh, what percentage each country is going to pay for the regular assessment? That's the 22%, and then for the peacekeeping for the Americans, and then it, there's the peacekeeping percentage, which is a little bit higher. The U.S. Congress, in its wisdom, a few years ago, decided that it, that peacekeeping would be at 25%. So it takes a congressional authorization every uh, uh, every time the budget comes up to raise that to the is it 28%, 28.5? I'm looking at Peter. Massa, massa, right, 20, Peter. 28 percent that they that the US uh, uh, is supposed to pay according to the formulas that's been agreed by the UN and agreed by the US. So there's a 3% difference in what the US is supposed to pay for the last two years. Congress has not authorized that additional uh, increase. So the US is behind and since it is a quarter plus of the budget, that's, that's uh, a big chunk. So first and foremost, please ask your members of Congress, please ask your senators to support this increase to the regular assessed level for peacekeeping. It saves the US billions of dollars and it protects the US interest all around the world for the US to play its role for, for peacekeeping. That's number one. Number two is that years ago in the Reagan administration, uh, the OMB director decided one of the ways he could save money was to not pay the US, uh, the UN dues. And that was across the whole UN, not just the UN itself, but any other entity that they paid dues. And so the US, UN's uh, fiscal year is January 1. Uh, the US fiscal year, as you know, is October 1. So they didn't pay that year until October. So the U, this is the regular dues, the 22% regular dues to fund the UN and any other entity that is funded that way. So that means that the payer of almost a quarter never pays until the fourth quarter. 
So, uh, so the that's by that time the UN is out of, of out of luck because by the way that modeled bad behavior by other governments as well who then said oh well, I don't have to pay till my fiscal year starts oh I don't have to pay in January like I always do because there's no so so the UN is in really uh, tough financial shape and yes we pay we should pay. So, Catherine, why, if I go up to the Hill and I talk to some member of Congress, why is the, what is the rationale as to why we're, we're, we're nickel and diamond them? Is there some specific beef, like I'm unhappy about some peacekeeping thing, or they voted the wrong way on Israel? What's the, what okay. would be the rationale? I, do you, I can't, I can't okay. answer that question. Bill, do you know? Do you know? Peter, I'm going to come to you, and you're going to tell me what's the, you're going to come back to that, but um, what, what, is, what, is the, what is the objective argument as to are they punishing the UN for a vote on Israel? Is it something on, are, you, are they grabbing the guns? What are they doing that, that, that's creating this problem? So, so okay, Amb Ambassador Richardson, so if we don't pay our dues, what does that feel like if you're the US ambassador to the UN? You've had this experience before. What's that like? Is that a fun experience? No, it's not fun. It's and not I'm glad fun Ambassador Cameron Hume, who was with me at the UN, knows how, uh, you know, I arrived in 1997. I left the Congress to go to the UN, and I thought this was my dream job. The slight problem, Jesse Helms was holding up our 25%, not because he was mad at the UN over Israel, many other issues. And so I got there, and we weren't paying the 25%. So I'd give a speech and say, you know, on Iraq, uh, we've got we to do this. And a lot of the ambassadors say, uh, Mr. Ambassador, what are you going to pay your dues so that you could actually have some leverage? Well, it finally worked out uh, during my term, but, uh, and this is a fundamental problem. I mean, in the old days, the management issues at the UN, and I think, Dan, you, you, you articulated some, uh, you know, the UN is seen as a graveyard for former politicians, myself excluded. Excluded. Uh, <laughs> President Gutney excluded. But uh, the, the UN is not efficiently run, <laughs> cost overruns. The problem is the separation between the peacekeeping funds and, and the secretariat funds today, where you have to dip into uh, accounts that uh, financially are, are not viable because member states are not paying their dues on time or at all. And, and we, the United States, and you know, when I was there, China, a uh, major power, said, well, we're a developing country. We should only pay 2%. <laughs> and I said, no, you need to pay a little more. I think they're up to 13 now. So there's still, I think, a need for a restructuring of the assessments. I would try to find a way to enforce the assessments a lot of it is political will. I would not go to this concept of voluntary contributions, because then, you know, what, what's going to happen is the Nordics are going to pay for everything, and they'll have uh, the United States and the P5 will be, I think, diminished, and, and you don't want that. But the UN finally is an agency for the third world, for Africa, Asia, Latin America. This is their voice. This is their platform. And, and, and we have to be conscious of that and recognize that on many of these issues that come up before the General Assembly, uh, proliferation, the death penalty, the rights of women, LGBT rights, you need international support. You need votes. And, and this is something that we are not paying attention to in our American political process. 
Okay, so let me go through there's several things I want to cover. So I think in Washington and in the United States, I don't think we fully understand the power of the UN brand. I'm not, I know people have, maybe there is a significantly higher, the United States, the American people, maybe if you look at the polling would say they like it, but I don't think it's fully ex appreciated here in Washington, the power of the good housekeeping seal of approval or sort of the soft standard setting power that the UN has. So um, there's something called the Millennium Development Goals, which I'm not, you know, I'm Catholic. I have a hard time keeping the Ten Commandments straight. I can't tell you what the seven MDGs are. I'm sure there's several people who will tell me, oh, my favorite one's number three, and I don't know what number three is, okay? Then there's this other thing called the Sustainable Development. So that one, I like the MDGs because it was a bunch of um, great powers that got in a smoke-filled room. I like smoke-filled rooms and came up with them and said, here you go. And so the rest, it kind of worked, but the problem was it was in a smoke-filled room and it was six or, it was 10 or 20 smart people that got in a room and did it. And so the UN said, well, that's not inclusive enough. We need a much more inclusive process. So then they said, we're gonna take three years and we're gonna get everybody, to, everyone's, everyone's itch or scratch, everyone's pet rock, and we're gonna have a super inclusive dialogue process. The UN's are good at that. And it was you know, a lot of sausage making, and they created some called the Sustainable Development Goals. Now there's 17 of the goals. Those. Don't ask me to tell you which one is which, but I know there's 17 of them. And then there's 169 sub-indicators, and sure as hell don't ask me what the hell are the 169 sub-indicators, but I know there are a lot of those. What shocks me, now that they've been out since 2015, is that these things stick. There are a lot of people that talk about them the way when Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets, they talk about them in those terms in a lot of countries. Now, I don't, I don't think, I think if you go to Capitol Hill and you ask members of Congress other than like a handful of Democrats and, or like the mayor of Berkeley and the mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts, you say like, what are the sustainable development goals? How many members of Congress know what the hell the sustainable development goals are? I'm guessing maybe 20. Now, I know the UN Foundation is like, oh no, there's 60 of them, but I, I'm gonna argue there's probably 20 to 30 people who know what the hell the SDGs are. Um, I've asked prominent people in the Trump administration, and this isn't like a critique of the Trump administration, I've asked people who aren't in the biz, do you know what the SDGs are like, no, I don't, what is that? So it's not because they're stupid, it's just, it's a super obscure thing. Now, outside of the border of the United States, this stuff is treated like the Ten Commandments. Co big companies take them seriously. Big global companies, like say, I'm gonna look at, so there are lens by which you can look at big problems. Um, many developing countries have kind of looked at their problems and set and said, I'm gonna measure my progress in the right. world on these SDGs. Right. Um, big don't Nordics, like I said, like the Nordics measure the, how they spend. Now, I was at the World Bank and I had a laissez-passe, which is a fancy term for a fancy UN passport. When I was there, the, U, the U World Bank didn't want to be bossed around by the UN and told how to spend the money. So they'd say, yeah, 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 I'm involved with the MDGs, but just go away. I want to spend the money when I spend it. But there's a lot of pressure in terms of the aid system to talk about your problems and measure problems along the SDGs. And then there's a lot of pressure on the aid given out of money business to how you spend your money through the lens of the SDGs. So this is just one example of many of sort of the soft power of the SDGs. Did, can I get both of you to react to this thing about no, the soft power? Well, absolutely, but first of all, the MDG, just slight correction, it wasn't a bunch of great powers in the room for the SDGs, it was a few staff people. MG, MDGs. M MDGs, it was a few staff people. But, um, but. Was it a smoke-filled room? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. I wasn't there. I, 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 this is, I, I have know. visions of a smoke-filled room, Kat. Uh, uh, okay, make it a smoke-filled uh, yes, room. Yes, yes, let's go with the smoke-filled room. The reason why that works 
is because it takes power and influence to the people. It makes uh, an opportunity for small community organizations, national NGOs, anybody who can see something that they believe in in the MDGs or the SDGs and say, this is important to me. All the governments have said this is important to them. And then they can go back to their government and hold the government accountable. Just because that's not necessarily how it works here does not mean that's not how it works in Africa and Asia and Europe, anywhere else, where those things are important. And you can see it, when the, as you kind of referred, with the, with the MDGs. I went, to, I went to a League of Women Voters meeting in Cortland, New York, and had heard somebody stand up and talk about the MDGs. Wild. And I said, wow. I mean, and they, they were really uh, into it and really pushing it and using that to go to their congressman to talk about it. Uh, but, it's, it, but it was all around the world, and the SDGs just do that in a more powerful way. And if we want to think about accountability, the communities are ultimately going to hold us accountable. And after all, let's think about that. Whether we're an aid agency, an NGO, or UN, or anything else, we shouldn't be sitting in New York or Rome or Geneva and saying, well, this is how the world should be. Uh, but we should listen much more to communities all around the world about what, what people think the world should be like. And, and if we do that, we're going to build a better world. And this is what these help to do. And I agree with you, the SDGs got way too complicated and a, well, a huge, big process and all these little sub-things. Yes, but it's working. It, but it's ha it enjoys, so even though I, it shocks me the level of legitimacy they enjoy because of all the three-year kind of the, you know, traveling, you know, traveling concert of conferences and you know, itches and scratch meetings and pet rock meetings and whatever, that is what mattered so that people could say, okay, well, I feel some ownership about this stuff. Ambassador Richardson, do you agree that, that, that we undervalue sort of the, the, whatever you want to call it, sort of the power of the good housekeeping seal of approval or sort of the soft power that the UN has outside of our borders that we don't fully appreciate here? I do believe we undervalue it, but I think what you're focusing here are solutions, and I'm gonna, you know, throw out a solution. The problem, with the American public uh, understanding the UN is, you know, there's always, uh, well, we first attitude, whether whoever is president, there's always that. And, you know, politicians have to get reelected and, you know, the UN is not exactly a, a, a major positive issue. Although if you frame it right, you, you can make a good case for uh, American UN participation. Um, across the world though, and one of the reasons the UN is having, I think, these uh, financial problems, maybe legitimacy problems, is the world thinks the US dominates the UN too much. The P5, you know, Russia, China, Britain, France. And, and I'm gonna propose a solution there, which uh, I don't think is, has any chance of happening. But um, we proposed it in the Clinton administration and it got a little traction. But, um, if you focus more on national security issues, uh, the American public, I think, will respond more. Uh, North Korea, Iraq, the role of the UN. Um, but let me just say what I think is needed is more equities by the international community in the UN so that everyone, so you reform the way you pay your dues. Uh, and, you know, Dan, you said the deadbeat countries. There shouldn't be that. I would expand the UN Security Council. And this is what we proposed years ago. It, it moved a little bit. 
you got the P5, and this was one of the great contributions of Vandenberg, you know, the, the veto power. You know, you, you got to go where, I guess in those days, the power was, and they were dividing the Cold War territories. Uh, Russia, China, U.S., France, and Britain. I'd expand the U.N., and this is what we tried to do. This is Security Council. Yeah. Security Council. Germany and Japan. You add them because they're major players. You don't give them veto, but they're permanent members. And then you say, well, what about Africa, Asia, and Latin America? And, and the mistake that we made is we said, okay, Africa should get one. Latin America should get one. Asia should get one. But then instead of saying, well, there should be rotation, uh, the third world regions started arguing with each other. Latin America. Brazil said, no, we should do it. We're the big. Mexico said, no, we should do it. So they canceled each other out. Asia. India said, well, you know, we, sh we should be the, the extra member. Pakistan said, no, no, we should. So they canceled them out. Africa. Uh, South Africa said, no, no, we should be it. Nigeria said, no, we're bigger than you. So, so that was canceled out. And then the Italians, Dan, were very mad at right. me because they thought it was my idea. You're going to let Germany in and not us, Italy. That's you know, fantastic. they're major contributors fantastic. to the UN, major players. And so, you know, we, we, we should have done rotation. We should have thought it better. But I think if you expand the role of nations in the whole P5 Security process, Council, Security Council uh, that, that will get more international strength and legitimacy and uh, financial support for the UN. That's what Bill, I want. what do you think about that? Well, well, I want to ask Bill a question, though. Is it true that the Italian ambassador said to you or the president or someone, well, how come just Germany and Japan? We lost the war, too. Oh, no, I, no, I know. Well, I, I knew that's, that's oh the way I was attacked. I know. I, but uh, I think the thinking, uh, I don't know if you would change that today. This was uh, 98, 99 we proposed this, Catherine. Wasn't that, Cameron, 99? I don't know how you would change. No, you, you offer a legitimate criticism. And we, we didn't think it through, but I think this is something that should be considered again. But it's probably not, especially you know, with the US attitude towards the UN. But Catherine, what do you think about that? And to the extent we don't fix it, do we run the risk over time of just like not paying our dues? Is, is there a, is, do you let some of the air out of the legitimacy balloon if we didn't do some fixes to say the, the Security Council representation? Yes, and it's not just the Security Council. Uh, so the whole idea of changing governance of this structure that was so carefully created in uh, in, in the 40s. In 1945, around the world that existed then and for all the good reasons. I mean, no, almost no one will criticize why those decisions were made, and many of them have still held very true. But also nobody really wants to change them. And it's not just the Security Council, uh, but it's also other port parts of governance. It's just in my experience now in the UN since 92, uh, the um, uh, the it's too complicated. Who, who it, for instance, in the U.S. government, and this is not, not a criticism of the U.S. government because you could just say Japan or Nigeria or U.K. or anything else, but who in the government wants to take on working this through? You know, the ambassador took it on when he was there, 
uh, and then he and and the administration left. But then and then what? I mean, who? Where is this place where there's going to be a long-term commitment? Because you cannot do these things overnight. You cannot do them over two years. You've got to do, make a commitment. You know, the 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 British government. I I admired when I was both at the UN and both at WFP and at the UN because they would take positions about what ought to change internally within the UN and not change it by administration or whatever, not change it by whoever was the prime minister, not change it by what party was in power. They would just work and work and work at these things over time. Some of them seem little, like for instance, that each head of each UN agency, uh, the position should be term limited. Okay, because a lot of them weren't and then people just were there for a long time. So that's just one example. And it, it, over time, over time, over time, they would work on that and finally achieve it almost everywhere. So the, they're, they're not sexy issues, they're difficult issues. And where in the government is there gonna be a commitment that we're really gonna do this? We're really gonna work over the long term because we think the Security Council should change, for instance. We really wanna work over the long term so that the boards of the humanitarian agencies of UNHCR and, and UNICEF and WFP have some similar representation. We wanna send the same American to every meeting of those three so we know there's consistent messaging and it's not somebody from AID at one thing and somebody from state at another thing and somebody from USDA at another thing and somebody from DHHS at another thing, DH whatever health. Yeah, well, the the alphabet soup of government. Yeah. So, um, but we're not the only ones. I mean, it's everybody yeah. else. So when is there gonna be, a, it only needs a small coalition of a few countries who really say, we wanna do something about governance. I mean, think about FAO, for instance. This week, I think it is, they're electing a new director general, a new head of FAO. They had one head for 18 years since they didn't have term limits. That's a long time. They had another head for 18 years. And, and, and the British tried over time, over time, finally they made it, so now the head is only there for two terms and he's leaving and there's a new one being elected. But, you know, what was happening at FAO for 44 years? How much attention did the U.S. government really pay to this? Well, it's USDA's responsibility. Well, isn't it also state's responsibility? Isn't it also just kind of a, a congressional oversight responsibility? I mean, who, who was paying attention to how FAO was managed and the dues money that we were paying to FAO was properly being spent? I'm not saying that the Americans who went to those meetings were irresponsible. I'm just saying that it's not a high enough, important enough issue in the context of management, and that's governance, which gets back to the Security Council. All right, so I want to, at the end of this, at the end, I want to come back to you and say, okay, what is, when I come out of here, what are my, what is the think, what's the think tank, what's the homework assignment for think tank people like me? So I want each of you both to think about what, give, give it two or three, not now, but at the end of this conversation, I want you, you're, you're going to have, give me two to three homework assignments each that we can collectively, that are realistic and we could collectively work on as Team America on this, okay? So I've got a couple other things I need to cover and then I want to open this up and there's a lot of smart people I want to hear from in this audience, okay? So um, I want to first talk about the global spoils system. I like the global spoils system as long as America gets most of the, the good ones, mm -hmm. I'm good with it. But um, there's a logic to the global spoils system. What do I mean by the global spoils system? The global spoils system, I don't know what else to call it, but I think I've coined a new term, which is that the system of, there's some fancier term for it, but basically the Americans get the World Bank, the Europeans get the IMF, the Japanese get the Asian Development Bank, a non-permanent five member gets the UN Secretary General gig, 
the Americans get the World Food Program as of, as of when Catherine got it 20 years ago, and we, we traded out for UNDP, or we, you know, or we lost UNDP. Uh, the Americans get UNICEF. Um, I don't know, you get the idea. I think you guys know what I'm trying to describe here, right? There's a system of kind of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a doling out of the goodies, if I can put it that way. And Catherine, I want you to talk about your research project because I want to do a little public service on it for the research work you're doing on this as part of the global spoil system conversation because I think it's, a, it's an interesting issue. And then I want you each, so could I ask you each to reflect on the global spoil system and Catherine, could you just talk a little bit about the research work you're doing related to the global spoil system? So let me start with you. Thank you. Uh, uh, public, uh, publishing a paper soon with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs called uh, Leading Change in UN Organizations. And it was funded by my fellowship at the Rockefeller Foundation. Well, the first conversations that I was looking into were around what kind of reforms we should think about in the humanitarian space. Uh, international humanitarian work. We know the humanitarian organizations do a terrific job, and I think that's what people don't really appreciate about the UN, that, that what the World Food Program and UNICEF and UNHCR especially that are on the front lines of vir virtually every disaster and, and, and helping to, to uh, save millions of lives. But still, um, it hasn't been looked at, and the, the management and governance over time hasn't been looked at, and should that be reviewed? Well, I shifted from that because there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest at the time in that to, all right, well, leadership and change does not just happen because governments decide to change UN systems, but rather it also changes internally, as we did at WFP. When I walked into WFP in 1992, it was uh, uh, four months after the USSR had uh, ended. Uh, short, it was shortly after the uh, Berlin Wall had collapsed. The world was changing. And uh, we had just been divorced organizationally from the FAO. So th there was a lot of change that was necessary at w WFP in order to make a real um, uh, uh, difference. Somebody asked me when I came back to Washington, had I ever run an organization like this before? And I said, yes, I've run um, a, a development organization, a bureaucracy at least, that works very slowly at USDA and at HHS. And I've run a political campaign. And I've just never run both of them in the same place in the same organization. <laughs> because the emergency part of WFP is boom, you've got to do something right away. It's in the press, you, in, and, and, and you've got to move your logistics, and you have the right messaging. You've got to find people. You've got to save lives. And then the rest of it is you think about what projects you're going to do and take a long time and consult with a lot of people, and then put these projects together over a couple of years. We had to make that one organization and make it work fast. So I thought, aha, we changed. Uh, internally at WFP. So my paper, Leading Change in UN Organizations, is kind of guidance to incoming agency heads to say these are some of the things you need to think about. This is things to think about before you walk in the door. This is when you walk in the door. This is how you uh, should consider about your own, what you consider about your own uh, personality and about the organization's personality, the culture, the governance, the funding. And then if you want to lead transformational change, here are some ideas about what works. But it's not just from me at WFP. There are quotes and discussions from about two dozen different uh, former agency heads or deputies about how this works within the UN context. So thank you for letting me give that commercial, but here's the point. Um, the point is that there's no, when somebody's selected, like this new person at FAO, for instance, about to be selected, or when David Beasley was selected to, to current head of WFP, um, there's, there is no 
transitional support, there's no training, there's no, this is how the UN works, this is how your organization works. The UN provides absolutely nothing. If you get anything, you get it out of your own government. And you might get some help from a foundation, but it's done on an ad hoc basis. So how do we, these are big jobs. How do we jobs. set them up for success? How do we, right. How do these we, are real jobs. Exactly. How do we get them? What about the guy that just went to the World Bank? I mean, besides any briefing he got from the UN. Or from yours truly. Well, right. okay, so he must be but very that, well prepared. That's, he's very well prepared so, then, right, but, but, so, but, but it's but not enough. But so what, how this really should exist in more, and it's not just the head of the agency, because a lot of people are hired in at senior jobs within these agencies that come from the U.S. government or from the private sector or from another government. And we say figure it out. How do they out? know? Right. We say, in essence, we say figure it out. Right. And the other question, though, Catherine, is how do we make sure we don't, as part of this global split system, there's a danger that we put dopes in these jobs, right? In addition, so is that is that true too? Is that a danger? Well, sometimes the the uh, people are elected, and then it's up to the electorate, right? Uh, who elects them? So we, there's not so much Damn. control. The voters get the voters get who they deserve. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, but then they're appointed. Look, the global spoil system, and I think Catherine. Uh, you're studying it. I think you, I hope you get a lot of circulation on your conclusions. But I'm going to speak as a politician. The global spoils, it's not going to change. Countries are not going to give up their, their, their slots. Uh, their slots. Now, what I do think needs to happen, maybe this can be studied. Uh, I don't think the Africans, the Latin Americans, or the Asians, or women get enough of these top jobs. I don't have statistics to prove that, but that's my sense. Uh, you know, the UNEP job, the environment job, used to be an African. It's no longer. Um, I don't know who got it. I, I don't follow. You guys are right here in the Beltway. I'm in New Mexico, so I don't follow all this as much as you do. But um, so, so what do you do about it? You know, th this is, uh, should the US give up the World Bank position? No. I mean, let's try to find a way to name the strongest person, and, uh, and you've been through that process, Dan. Um, in the same vein, uh, the Europeans, are they going to give up the IMF? No, they're not going to do that. So let's find ways that we don't, you know, we don't, uh, you've got to respect political boundaries and, and political power. I, I'm going to go back to my Security Council reforms as something that spreads out uh, the power more that would give the UN more legitimacy. Can, can I just, Gov Governor, let me just start. Let me, if you were at my Thanksgiving table, and I want to out any of my close family members, but they've got a list of, of complaints. And these are not crazy people. These are not jackbooted thugs and black helicopter types. They're, but they're, they're Republicans. and. I'm, I'm Republican, and so they've got kind of a list, and, and generally the critiques are generally in the Republican Party about the United Nations. Mo my view, and this is a little bit of an unfair thing, most people who are super excited about the UN in, in the United States are not Republicans, and now there are some. There's some thoughtful people. Thank I'm, you. I, Catherine's one, Thank I, you. So is, and I, I'm, I'm broadly supportive of it. But the, the critiques are generally on the right, though there, I think there's also some others, and, so I, and, I think, and I think one of the challenges is getting Republicans to take the, you know, to, to be invested in it, et cetera. And, um, and so let me just list, let me just, let me enumerate some of the critiques and I'd like you to start with you, Governor, and then I'll, I'll go to Catherine, but let me just list some of the things. So one of them is there's this parking tickets thing 
and I want you to, you know, we, we there was the parking tickets and the and the U, all these the Sudanese ambassador wouldn't pay his parking tickets because he had U, diplomatic immunity, and there was millions of dollars of parking tickets, and isn't that a, isn't that a, a total obnoxious horrible thing? So one is the parking tickets thing, the second is sort of a general feeling, and then it's kind of vaguely described as there's like lots of corruption at the United Nations. There was this oil for food thing, there's been other sorts of malfeasance and bribery and. You've got all these people coming from very corrupt countries and bringing their corrupt practices and kind of playing out their corrupt uh, um, issues or whatever you want to call it or behaviors in, in the UN system. And, and, that's, and that's kind of, that's, that's for sure there. That's kind of a second critique. There's a little bit of a third one, which is a little bit harder to get at, which is, well, these are really highly paid, cushy, tax-free gigs. And I don't really like the fact that these people have these cushy tax-free gigs. This is the third one. The fourth one is these guys are anti-Israel. Every other day I read in the newspaper that there's some anti-Israel vote and they, they crap on the Israelis and it's a, it must be an, it's a horrible anti-Israel organization. I don't like because like it's anti-Israel. The fourth, sixth one is human rights. There's this goofy human rights council and they put the, the North Koreans or the Sudanese or the Libyans or some some carnival of horrors of freak show governments as the chair of this thing as a total provocation. Uh, what the hell are we doing about this human rights goofball human rights commission? The seventh one is they're going to grab my guns. There's some UN thing. They're going to use the soft law stuff. And they're going to approach the, the international sovereignty. They're going to tell me I can't send my kid to bed without supper. And they are going to grab my guns and they're going to do some goofy liberal thing on you know, sex-related stuff. So something like that. So I think those are, I think, the critiques, if you said to me, what my smart, my smart family members would say, they probably wouldn't exactly articulate it exactly that way. But I think you all know what I'm talking about, right? And so now I don't think this is probably an anti-UN crowd. So there's probably a lot of, there's a little bit of snickering, and there's a little bit of knowing, like, oh, aren't they silly? in flyover country a little bit in some of the, the reactions I'm seeing in the audience. But I would just say that I think these are real. And I think these are the kinds of things, because then you'll say, well, why can't we get people to care about the UN? I think the list I just listed is the reason people don't have issues with the UN. And then I think, I suspect if I go and press on the Hill, like why we're in arrears, it's one of those things. I can't prove it. Or then there's the other thing, which, oh, I forgot. There's one last thing, which was this Haiti thing. So we sent some peacekeepers. The Nepalese brought cholera. Um, they killed a lot of people with cholera, and the UN wouldn't recognize it for a long time, and we had to kind of get them to fess up. And they, they can't really fully articulate it, but they're aware there's a cholera thing. So it's not fair. I've enumerated what they are, but I think we need to, like, let's just, there's several elephants in the room when we talk about the UN, because most of the people that come to UN things are generally super pro-UN, and kind of, I wouldn't call it gloss over the problems or gloss over the critiques. But I think I'd like you both to, you don't have to react to all the critiques. I think let's skip the, the parking tickets one because I want to hear from, I'm going to call on Pat Kennedy later in the audience. I want him to talk, take on the parking tickets issue. But I want you guys, could you react to any or all of the other critiques that I've just put on the table? And let me start with you, Governor Richardson. Well, you know, Dan, you, you've elucidated everyone very, very reasonably. And, you know, you hear them all the time. I had to go up before voters and... This is what you hear. I'm going to focus instead of answering everyone. No, you don't. Don't please no, don't answer every one no, of them. That's uh, right. I'll, I'll, I want to focus on the solution because I think this is what groups like you, pro UN, yeah. foundation types, yeah, need yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah. This is what I would do. Number one, um, 
It's called marketing. It's called you know politics. It's called how do you penetrate not just in the United States, but in, in, in countries as well that are emerging anti-UN populist movements. So it's not just you know a US problem. Um, what's the answer? I think you focus instead of saying, no, I'm gonna refute the black helicopters. I'm gonna refute the, and I, when I came yeah. into the UN. Yeah, put, put black helicopters aside, exactly. No, 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 when I came into the UN, the problem was parking tickets. The big problem, it was the Russians that, that allegedly weren't paying their tickets. They weren't. They for you know, sure they, weren't. They weren't. Right. So Giuliani and I were negotiating, and, and then Pat Kennedy fixed it. Where is Pat? Pat's back there. Later, yeah, Pat Kennedy, a, a career guy. So um, I'd go on the offensive. And I, I think there are a lot of young people here, and I don't mean to single you out, but persuasion, you guys. persuasion today in politics, you know what persuasion used to be? TV ads. Oh, traditional TV ads, op-eds. That's gone. It's social media. It is... Uh, Twitter, it is Facebook, it's WhatsApp, wh whatever you guys do. That's how you penetrate younger minds and you focus on the positive issues. A huge one is climate change and climate refugee issues. Uh, immigration is another one. I know it's not too popular around here. Um, endemic diseases, focus the rights of women, um, issues relating to um, not just uh, refugee flows, but humanitarian issues, issues that advance entrepreneurship. I think I'd focus on the positive. Now, I don't know how to do this. You know, I'm, I'm telling you. And, and I was encouraged by Dan uh, talking about the UN Foundation effort to bring young people, uh, for instance, to the US Congress, young ambassadors. I think you get a, this is gonna be a long-term effort. You focus on the young. You know, can you change things right away? No, it's not gonna happen. You're gonna change the global spoil system? It's not gonna happen. You're gonna change some of these images, possibly about the UN and its problems, uh, some of these things that Dan talked about. But I think you do it by focusing on the positive instead of like, no, that's not true about the parking. No, it's not true about corruption. There, there are problems. There's corruption in American system and our in our system, right? Right. So, anyways, okay, Catherine. So, I, I think you should invite Ambassador Richardson to your Thanksgiving dinner. Next I think time. Ambassador Richardson, will you come to my Thanksgiving I'll dinner? Come. All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Pass the turkey. Okay. So, Catherine. So, I've listed the the critiques, and maybe you don't have to agree exactly how I've characterized it, but. Pick some of those and react to some of them. Well, some are correct, and I mean, if you think of, look at how many votes there are in the U.S. in the U.N. where Israel and and the U.S. and maybe one or two other countries are on one side and everybody else is on the other side. Um, there, the I think the the issues relating to Israel are are understood to be fairly correct. The issues of in Haiti. Um, the UN took a long time, a very long time, before they acknowledged uh, the role of the peacekeepers in Haiti in bringing cholera. That was a, that was a mistake. They didn't do that properly. I mean, you can point to some of these things, as well as as issues, as you say, like corruption and others, which um, wouldn't be any different than in any other system. But what's I think wrong with the thinking, if I can think of. Mrs. Rundy or whomever is thinking yes. about these issues. I don't want to out my mother, but she's on. The, she's probably one of them. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mrs. Yeah, Rundy. Yeah. Um, 
The UN is New York, yes, and that's where there's a lot of politics and a lot of discussion where, where, where countries come together, each with their own individual interests to try to work together on coming to some conclusions. And in the process, there are both bureaucratic and political uh, uh, stretch points where there are um, problematic issues. That is one piece of the UN. But the UN is also saving the lives of children, of, of, of protecting refugees, helping feed people and be sure that uh, they're not starving when they're living amidst a huge disaster, when they're man-made or, or natural. And then the UN is doing all sorts of other things that we never even think about. There is, Mrs. Rundy, there is a, an FAA-like UN agency that works on the regulation of air traffic all around the globe. There is a, a, uh, an, an entity between the health organization and the agriculture organization that works on food safety, that's involved in safe, setting safety standards for all of the food all around the globe. There are, there are UN agencies that deal with sh shipping, ocean transportation, um, that deal with communications, that deal with copyright law, that deal with postal um, uh, rules so that you can send a letter from, from here to Ireland and it actually works. So there's so many things the UN does we never even think about and they're not the tiniest bit controversial, um, but yet they're part of the international social order and they are part of what makes us work. Finally, I want to say to you that um, I'm sure this would not happen at the Rundy dinner table, but at one of my uh, uh, family events one time, I met a cousin I hadn't seen in a long time, and she is very, very conservative, and she said to me, hmm, you used to work for the UN. I said, yes, I did. Hmm, you're on the Council on Foreign Relations. What do you do there? And, and she, hmm. The Trilateral Commission, what is that? And uh, so after a while, I just said, uh, knowing that I worked at WFP, I said, yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I'm in charge of the black helicopters. <laughs> what kind of helicopters are they? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so, okay, I've got several people I need to hear from. I need to hear, I want to hear from, I want to hear from Peter from the UN Foundation. I want to hear from Pat Kennedy. I want to hear from Cameron Hume. Uh, and I need to hear from, let's see, I'm looking, I can't be all dudes. Come on, help me out here, ladies. Come on, okay, come on. Okay, I'm gonna start with you three and then we'll see who else comes forward. Peter, come on, please, let's give the microphone to my friend. We're gonna bunch three or four of these together. Okay, Peter. So Peter, can you first talk about why, why, why are we not, why, why are we in arrears? For, sure. Briefly on that and then give me a happy, Tell me something happy. Good, okay, well, uh, first of all, thanks, Dan, for celebrating the legacy of Arthur, Van, Arthur Vandenberg. When we think about what the type of politician he was and the leader he was, Bill Richardson and Catherine Bertini are exactly the type of leader that he would have wanted to be here today. Or so he would recognize and applaud. Absolutely, so thank you very much for uh, celebrating that legacy. Um, you asked why Congress is paying not the full amount and why the executive branch is not supporting paying our full amount for UN peacekeeping. It, in large part, is two reasons. First of all, they think that withholding dues increases leverage for reform in terms of effectiveness or cost or transparency. So withholding dues, more leverage. And that second of all, 
it's a burden sharing argument, right? 25% has a ring to it. 27.8% sounds too much. And so it's not really based on any science. It's more like, why should the US pay for more than a quarter of the bills for peacekeeping? I think that the response points are, first of all, in terms of, um, you know, for the past, uh, before this administration, the US paid its peacekeeping dues in full for eight years straight. And as a result, you've seen significant and major reforms to UN peacekeeping in terms of transparency, in terms of cost, and in terms of actually peacekeeping missions, missions ending. So if you pay your dues, you can kick some butt and, Absolutely. and say, I and want we, you to we, fix we, this We've now that. seen the missions in Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire end in a very positive way, leaving their countries better off than before. We, we're seeing the mission in Darfur closing um, uh, you know, over the next couple of years. So we're actually seeing exit strategies. And second of all, I think we need to remember that when we don't pay our dues, it reduces our leverage to get other things the U.S. wants in, 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 the, in, the, in the context of U.N. negotiations, because we're labeled as deadbeats, and that's unfortunate. It's also important to remember that when we don't pay our dues, it means that troop-contributing countries, because we don't contribute troops in general, mm -hmm. it's the Nepalese, it's the Pakistanis, it's the Indians who are the workforces, workhorses of peacekeeping, they're not being paid. So okay. we have troops not being paid as a result of the U.S. not meeting its dues. So Peter, you have some survey results that are coming. You can't share them today. I'm dying. I wish you would. But when can people go online and learn about the survey results? Is that yep. next week? Next week. Next, uh, I think Tuesday we're releasing a new Okay, watch report. the space. Watch the space. But uh, okay. it basically is related to the favorability rating of the uh, UN in the United States. And, and it's not going to drop by 20 points? You no, no, no. Generally, spoiler alert. The, the U, just spoiler alert. Generally, the UN polls in the mid-60s mid in terms of favorability rating, which, as you know, for any institution in America to be yeah, what's favorability in the mid-60s. What's Congress's favorability rating? Uh, uh, in the 20s. It's not in the mid-60s. So we're, we're doing all right. And so, yeah. but I just, it's, uh, watch that space next week for a new poll okay. with some other detail in it as Okay, well. Peter, let me just take advantage because I'm just, I'm working for you right okay. right now. Thank you. So, Peter, can you talk about the, the college things that you're doing? What is that? And you got to promise me that they're not all hippie people, okay? <laughs> you promise me they're not all hippie people, please. I assure you they're not. So, okay. uh, uh, the, the you United know Nation, what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? the United Nations Association is part of the UN Foundation. And over the past uh, three to four years, uh, we have turned uh, United Nations Association, our average age of our members was 70. Um, and yeah, now- Can you just repeat that? The average age Average was age 70. of our members was 70. And now the average, uh, the 60% of our members are under the age of 25. Okay, so and we're it's adding, diverse, politically diverse? We're adding, it's a very diverse. We have uh, at our lobby day uh, this Tuesday, we had representatives from all 50 states on the Hill, uh, and it is absolutely a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats okay. coming together to talk to members. There are at least four Republicans in that group, right? Uh, believe me, there's far okay. more than that. So. Okay, great, okay, fine. Okay, Pat Kennedy, can you tell the, the shortened version of the, can you, you could do two things, Pat. Can you talk about parking tickets? But let me, could you spend a minute also talking about any reaction to anything else other than parking tickets you want to react to on here? Well, there is no doubt that there were a few uh, countries in New York that were parking scofflaws. They just did not pay their tickets. But there are two other points of, of context. First of all, the, you, uh, this, the agreement between the, the city of New York and the United States government and the missions is that each country would get the two parking spaces right in front of their embassy building. It seems like a fair thing to do. The city was 
taking those spaces away and when just average New Yorkers or average Connecticut people drove in and parked in those embassy spots, the police were not enforcing them, forcing the ambassador then to park somewhere else and getting a ticket. So we made a deal with the city, okay, fine, you enforce those, and if we countries do run up legitimate tickets, we will then start taking away their parking spaces, and the U.S. government would do that. So we put some enforcement in. But let's talk about legitimate tickets. As you can imagine, all the parking enforcement officers in New York have a quoted again. You've got to <laughs> issue so many tickets per day. The tick guy's saying, oh, God, how am I going to make my quota? Oh, wait a minute. These diplomats don't have to pay their parking tickets because the New York Daily News says they don't. So I'll just go willy-nilly give parking tickets to diplomats. Uh, two examples, there'd be five, you know, Ubers or taxis lined up waiting in a no waiting zone and one ambassador's car, they pass by the five taxis and just ticket the ambassador's car. I love it. Or great. in New York, <laughs> when you write a parking ticket, you've got to, you've got to put down the address of the, of, the, uh, of the violation and you can use the right side of the street or the left side of the street. So they'd write a ticket to a diplomatic car, use the odd number address, and then one minute later, write another ticket as if the car was parked on the other side of the street. So, yes, violations, but way overblown in the tabloids, and the volume of money involved was grossly inflated by doubling and tripling the fines on many, many, many citations, which the mayor personally admitted to me weren't valid. Okay, Pat, well, I've got you. Okay, if you had one fix to the UN system, you know, this is not your first rodeo, what, what is a realistic fix we could or should be pushing for the UN system? I don't know how realistic this is, but one of the things that I know that many governments are doing, including the United States government, is trying to make sure that they have the most efficient management back rooms possible. You know, those who operate the computer systems, those who pay to do the payroll, those who pay the bills, those who handle, you know, logistics, transportation. I think the UN really needs to look at have the fact that the United Nations and each one of the funds and programs, UNICEF, you know, FPA, et cetera, have their own backroom operations. And just as the United States and the Brits and others are trying to do, try to streamline it, take advantage of the economies of scale and the computer horsepower that can be, but, and therefore you reduce the cost of the UN operations globally, but yet not yet cut into mission. You, don't, you want to keep the good missions that you've all talked about going and just reduce the back-end costs. Okay, Cameron Hume up here, Ambassador Hume up here, and I want to hear from Tom Stahl. Yeah, this gentleman here with the great field jacket on. Ambassador. Yes, Dan. Please. Okay, I'm going to address first the human rights question. And it is a disgrace to have a human rights council with the Libyan ambassador as the head of the council. And uh, I think what we as Americans should ask, how did we participate in this? Are there any lessons to be learned? We agreed for reasons which were uh, insanely optimistic that, well, let's have a human rights council with more people on it. And if you look at the membership of the UN. And then we put our guy forward and he didn't get voted in. It, when you look at the membership of the UN, most member states 
are not governments of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's just not the world we live in. It's not the Vienna Boys Choir out there, is what and you're the trying more to say, you right? put on, And they're going to say the most important thing for the Human Rights Council is to protect us against the people who come from governments of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that will inevitably be more important, the defensive aspect to the Libyan regime at the time, yeah. than to the American government. And so we will lose. And we should be honest about things like this. And maybe we shouldn't participate in it, or we should have you know, selective participation in some things, but not try and sell it as this is going to be really good for us. The other thing I'd say is most of the arguments about the UN have very little to do with the UN, like Pat mentioned with the parking tickets. It's arguments between Americans about different views Americans have of the world and is not necessarily the least bit realistic. Okay, okay I want to hear from Tom Stahl. I also want to hear from Javier Ruperez, who's my friend. Um, first, I want to hear from Tom can, Stahl. Can yeah, I just no, make a yeah, do, you want, do you want a two-finger on that? Yeah, I have a two-finger on that. I had a graduate student at the Maxwell School <laughs> once from Pakistan, and she said about the UN, the difference between how we in Pakistan think about the UN and how the US, Americans think about the UN is that we consider that it's ours and we're all part of the same family, and yes, there's flaws, and we're all going to together try to fix it. You consider it's theirs, and it needs to be fixed, but we, you, you don't pretend you own ownership. it. Okay, I agree with that. That's interesting. Is it Tom? Yeah, that's a good point. Tom, you were at, at AID for 30 years. You grew Correct. up, you spent part of your childhood in Iraq. Yes. You were the, you're the senior most foreign service officer at AID before retiring, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Yeah, and worked a lot on humanitarian with WFP and UNICEF and so on. I wanted to pick up on some of the things that you said. You know, the UN really was set up to deal with conflict between states and relations between states to protect sovereignty in many ways. But the world has changed a lot. First of all, most conflict now is either internal in states like, you know, Yemen or South Sudan or so on, or uh, terrorist organizations, ISIS, Boko Haram, uh, whatever. And that's been a huge challenge, I think, for the UN system. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how they're dealing with that and the whole issue of sovereignty and more and more discussion about the responsibility to protect. And, mm. you know, and then we get blamed if we don't go in and stop you know, the Rwanda genocide where others say, well, that's an internal thing and so on. How do we deal with that as a UN organization? Okay, okay, Ambassador Ruperas. So Ambassador Ruperas is a former Spanish ambassador to the US, my friend, has written several fabulous books and was responsible for getting Spain into NATO and knows something about how countries have to make choices about joining the liberal international order. Thanks for being here, Ambassador. Thank you, Dan. Uh, on top of that, for three years, I was uh, Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations for Counterterrorism, oh. uh, working for the Security Council. So that's, uh, uh, and uh, though I knew rather well what the United Nations was uh, before joining the United Nations, there are three or four things that uh, uh, came very clearly to my mind. One is that uh, at the end of the day, if the United Nations wouldn't exist, we would have to invent it. Again. I completely agree. Second point, the country which has been, uh, in my experience, and I think this is uh, very much the overall experience, 
dealing with all the matters going around uh, and looking to all the matters dealing with uh, the, the United Nations been dealing with is the United States of America. And um, because even all the P5, all the P4, well, they have their own national problems. The only country which, apart from their own national problems, we're looking into all the overall problems were the United States of America. And I think that's extremely important that the United States keeps that sort of overall looking into matters, regardless of whether they affect or not their own national interests. The third point is that we have to remember that after all, the United Nations is about mainly three things peace and security, human rights, and cooperation. And um, those three things should be very much concentrated on the Security Council and the General Assembly. From that viewpoint, Ambassador Richardson was right about all the proposed changes, which are extremely difficult to, to, uh, to, uh, to take into account. But uh, again, it's extremely important to bear in mind that uh, this is not the world government. This is a multilateral institution, and we have to try and keep in mind what multilateral institutions have been playing in the last 70 years and should be playing in the future. And finally, uh, I, I think it's very proper to remember Ambassador, uh, Senator Bandenberg, but it's very proper to remember as well Eleanor Roosevelt, who after all was very much the force behind uh, the, the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, which was, fine, which was signed 70 years ago. Well, that, that's Thank you. Thank okay, you. my friend Augusto Lopez Claros, this young woman here, these two. Okay, this woman in the black. Let me start. Yeah, give it to Augusto and then this woman in the black. Yeah. Um, the UN Charter envisaged that within a 10 year period after, after 1945, there will be an attempt, there will be a conference held to actually look at the adequacy of the UN Charter and whether you know, some reforms could be introduced. In fact, that has never taken place. Um, 75 years later, the, the collective security uh, uh, provisions have never been implemented. Uh, we still have one country, one vote in the General Assembly. And in a sense, there is this feeling that the United Nations has remained frozen in time. Um, the world has changed in a dramatic way, and the UN Charter has never been amended. What is the possibility that in the foreseeable future we might actually go back and rethink the UN Charter to make the United Nations fit for purpose? Okay, and this young woman here. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so yesterday there was a discussion in the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe about Russian counterterrorism. And one of the large topics was how Russia is kind of projecting power through the UN, you know, the global spoil system that you talked about, the head of the CTO is Russian. Um, but the response to that was really that that's because the US has kind of been pulling back and that's why Russia is coming forward. Would you like to comment on that? Okay, great. All right, sorry guys, that's, I gotta stop it at that, but let's, let's, let's get my friends here to respond to any or all of what's been said. Catherine, let me start with you. Well, um, the, in the UN speak, the rise of non-state actors is um, a relatively new, certainly not thought of when the UN was first organized. So we saw that right on the front lines with, with uh, the UN flag, the Red Cross flag, the NGO flags, which we used to think were protection all in and of itself. All of a sudden were irrelevant once the uh, Red Cross uh, nurses were mur in Chechnya were murdered in their beds. Mm. And that was the beginning of a now terrible trend 
uh, about the uh, violent role of non-state actors, terrorists, and others, uh, which has made the, the, not only the work that the UN does in the field much more challenging and difficult, but which has put extra strain, I think, on the politics between countries, uh, because uh, in the context, in the broader context of the political context in the UN, nobody really wants to claim credit for people. Oh yeah, those terrible things are happening, but they really came from the country over the border, and we don't have any control over those. I mean, as one example, so uh, so I think it's cha it's, cha it's certainly changed the, the physical dynamics on the ground, uh, but it's also changed the the political dynamics of trying to solve problems because a lot of countries don't have control over uh, over um, uh, a lot of the actions that happen in their in their communities the responsibility to protect is this grand wonderful idea that we really can't let the Rwanda kind of thing happen again we have to be in place to do something about it and it was hailed it's a great wonderful idea uh, but then when it actually comes to, to doing something about it I think we've seen the same kind of recalcitrance as we did before it was in existence. So uh, that might be one of the issues to go on Dan's, Dan's homework, uh, assignment, homework list. assignment list. Okay, Ambassador? Well, I, you know, both what Javier said and uh, on the UN Charter, I, I agree. I, I don't know you, if you dispute that. The, the young lady um, on the, the international system, we all have theories of where the power centers are. This is my thought. One, there are four, I believe, in the world today. One, the United States. Two, the European Union. Three, Russia and China, because they're working very closely together. And then the fourth would be what you said, the non-state actors, terrorist groups, cartels, uh, you know, the ISIS of the world, the uh, uh, non-state, uh, drug cartels, uh, financial cartels. Uh, now, you don't give them representation at the UN. I, I mean, you're basically trying to foil those. But, but I just think the international system has changed since the charter days, since 1945, since Vandenberg. And I think the way the United Nations modernizes itself is, is be conscious of these changes in, in, in the power centers. Okay. Okay, give me, can you each give me homework assignments? So Catherine and Ambassador, what are, what are, some, what are some realistic, pick one or two realistic things that either the Trump administration could champion a new administration in 2020, other than the Trump administration if someone else wins in 2020, or some reformist members of Congress or reformist U.S. Ambassador Ewing could champion? What are those things? Catherine, let me start with you. Well, from, especially from what we talked about, there's, a, there's broadly speaking a governance issue which has a lot of different subsets, uh, but, but whether it's Security Council governance, agency governance, others, in terms of uh, ensuring that actually organizations are meeting the current needs that the world has or the future needs that we expect of the world. It's a very broad topic, but um, that's one, but um, much easier but still complicated is uh, on your issue of who's selected from where for what jobs. I think that, that the process could be uh, more open, even if there's an agreement that country X is going to su supply the person for job, job X. X. Uh, there could be a better process of selecting that person so that competencies are uh, more relevant. 
Um, and then, as I said before, that there, there, there could be more done about getting people ready for these jobs. It's been said many times that uh, we should do more about um, PR. Now, I know the Better World Foundation at the, at the UN Foundation does, Better World Fund at the UN Foundation does work on this, but clearly we all have more of a job to do in order to explain what the UN is in the, U, in the US. And, um, and then finally, and most currently, is that we can all work with Congress on the issues of paying our dues. Okay, Ambassador? Well, uh, one that I don't think is gonna work, my Security Council uh, reform. I effort. like it, it's interesting. Okay, one. Two, uh, I think Catherine, the marketing, the social media, uh, concentrating on young people around the world to bolster the UN and what it does well. The negative stuff, it'll be out there. Yeah, you gotta deal with it. Cameron's right. You know, the Human Rights Council is basically a joke. But the issue is, do you participate or not? I, I'm of the view that you participate. You try to make it better. But, you know, I'm in a minority there. Third, um, I think it's also important that you, we study a way. And I don't know how you do this, Dan. I think the fact that, you know, you have a bipartisan Republican axis here is good. Um, how do we a new system to get the UN out of its financial difficulties that deals with not just arrears, but contributions. I would not go to the voluntary, but maybe there's a more efficient way that you enforce the contributions that countries are not making. Uh, there'd be deadlines. I, 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 you gotta study it and then you have to sell it, probably to the P5 and, and, and other major donors. Um, what else? Uh, I think, I think there also has to be, you know, on the spoil system, I don't think you're gonna change that that much, but find ways that uh, more Africans, more women, more Latin Americans, more Asians, uh, or, or, you know, get a little, get a little peace. Uh, I think the Secretary General is doing a good job with Gutierrez. I was, uh, for a woman, I thought it's time to have a woman as head of the UN. Um, didn't happen. But the only spoil system that I would change or not pay so much attention to is the Secretary General, all right, regional, all right, the Asians got it this time, so now it's Europe's turn. Now it's, you know, do it on merit. Do it on, you know, somebody that can get votes, not just P5 votes. Put it into a general election. Those are, I, I, I could probably think of two more, but I won't, because I know you gotta finish, right? This is great. Thanks, Ambassador. Thanks, everybody. Please join me in thanking my friends. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Good.